or lasso. So I've been meaning to ask, I should have asked considerably earlier, uh, I had made a request right at the very beginning of the retreat that everyone who is fully attending it, uh, not auditing, uh, but fully attending, that you find a buddy here, so you kind of kind of be looking after each other. Is there anybody, because I, I know people like Nico and, and, and uh, Kim, you can't come here every single time, but you have responsibilities, let alone Klaus. But for those who are fully attending, does everybody have a buddy? Are you all linked up with somebody? Andreas is not, and Marcus is not? How would you like to be buddies? Oh, and more. I'm not going to be a matchmaker, but hands up. Okay, we have a few people. A few people. So can you see your hands? Um, and let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All right. What's that? I couldn't hear. You sort, you'll sort it out. Jolly good. Okay, good, good. And I do make the request again. Is anybody Maria's uh, buddy? Maria from Brazil. Is anybody her buddy? Yeah, she's missed a couple of sessions, and I would just kind of like to, you know, when people miss, we just get concerned. So if we can just, if, so, ah, voila. Speak of the Maria. Speak of the Maria. So that would be good. So we'll just wait. Because I did, oh, I wanted to mention, I did come a little bit early today. At least 90 seconds. <laughs> I just wanted, you, I know, I wanted to know whether you noticed the anomaly. Because normally you've got me bracketed within about 15 seconds, right? And there was a reason for that. Welcome, Maria. Welcome. Uh, Maria, I actually have a question for you right now. Would you like to read the sutta that you and I were discussing? Would you like to read the sutta that you and I were discussing? Because I have it here. Would you like it? And do you have a device you can put this into? Then please come. Oh, that's matter. You can just take this with you. I trust you. I know where you live. <laughs> And it has three other things that may be helpful, but the suit is there, and that certainly be helpful. You're welcome. Oh, yeah. Good. Oh, Lasso. So we're completing, believe it or not, our third week out of eight. And so now we're no longer beginning the retreat, and we're not kind of, it's the, the pilot hasn't said, ladies and gentlemen, in 30 minutes we'll be landing. You, now is the time to go to the bathroom and so forth. We're not there yet. We're now at cruising altitude, right? And so I think maybe now is a good time to give a very brief, and I mean five to 10 minutes, no more, brief introduction to how might you start moving into lucid dreaming if you're so inclined, right? Because uh, some of you are already having lucid dreams. And again, like everything else, mathematics, cooking, music, some people are more gifted than others, but also like cooking. Some people are just naturally gifted, but everybody can learn how to cook. I know, because I can cook. And I'm not gifted at all. But you know, I can boil an egg. And I haven't burned one once. <laughs> okay. So likewise, with perseverance, and you have. <laughs> yeah, poaching. A mean poach. Okay. I, I, I poach nice eggs, but he poaches a mean poached egg. So, with, so just but a few comments. And, and just by the way, this is not a pitch for the book at all. But uh, the book has come out. It's called 
dreaming yourself awake, on a Monday there will be some copies available here. And that takes the modern te techniques and theory of lucid dreaming with classical dream yoga and shamatha, integrates them into one package. And the bookstore will have them available on Monday. Okay? Anybody who's interested. It's called dreaming, dreaming Yourself Awake. Yeah. <laughs> it's by all of my teachers. Stephen Leberge and His Holiness and Gertrude Rinpoche and Jigmet Lingba and Padmasambhava. But I being the pretentious fool that I am, my name is on the cover. And, but I have to say, Brian's, Brian's is, he's also co-conspirator. Brian, Brian Hodel did an enormous amount of work to actually make it a book. I just go blah, 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 and then he makes a book. <laughs> so there we are. So there are cases. Here goes my 10 minutes. There are cases where people just spontaneously have lucid dreams. Just you, you look for, well, what was the training? What was the technique? What's the method? And there wasn't any. You know, they just are awake. And so, and, and quite a number of children have that ability. And then often when they hit puberty, they lose it. Um, Stephen Leberge, one of my dear friends, and from whom I've learned everything I know about lucid dreaming per se, and then dream yoga, really everything I've learned, I've learned from Gyatrodamuchi, from the Nyima tradition. Uh, although I've had other teachings, that's where it really struck home. Um, some people have them spontaneously, but then thanks to the, the very ingenious kind of the curiosity, the experimentation and so forth of Stephen Leberge and then the also methods from dream yoga, there are also methods. But my point here is this, that you may just spontaneously have a lucid dream, but then if you don't spontaneously have them, then within the context, if you'd like to develop that ability, and just as we all have the ability to cook somewhat, you know, um, then we all have the ability to learn how to become lucid dreamers, and some will probably progress, some will progress faster than others. Um, but within the context of a dream, if you'd like to be moving towards lucidity, which means recognizing the dream for what it is, and no longer being deluded, which means getting it wrong, then on the whole, you'll probably need something more than bare attention. Just noticing from moment to moment, oh, there's a pig flying. There's my grandmother. She's only 10 years old. Here I am, and I have fins. Oh, fins, moment to moment fins. And you're not noticing something really odd. You know? And that's because there's no question. There's no question, right? But if you start posing the question, and I'm quoting Stephen Leberge here, when you see something odd, then you really should pose a question, how odd? How odd is it? I didn't have fins yesterday, and now I have fins and I can breathe underwater. I couldn't. That's too odd. And then you make the transition over to a lucid dream. You recognize you're dreaming, right? Again, some people it has happened spontaneously. And likewise, in the waking state, some people, as in Buddha's discourse to Bahia, he gave him basically instructions on bare attention. In this scene, let there be just a scene, and so forth. There was no more commentary. And that was enough for, for the very gifted, Bare attention will be enough. And not just for Bahia. I'm not saying he's the one person in history. It can happen just spontaneously, with just bare attention. It can happen. And it happens almost invariably that if there's no undergirding, if there's no foundation in shamatha, you'll have some very, very meaningful breakthrough, some profound insight. It is authentic. It's a genuine vipassana insight in the nature of reality. And it will last for some period, 
seconds, minutes. The aftermath will probably, like, a, like sounding a bell, will probably reverberate quite loudly after that, and then it will taper off, and after a while it becomes a memory. So that's not always the case, but that is very frequently the case. It's the normal case. Whether you're practicing Mahamudra or Zen or Vipassana, without the stability and the clarity, and underneath that the relaxation of, of the, un, uh, underneath that the basis of relaxation, then the insights may come, but it's very hard to sustain them. And so you get a glimpse of reality, and then the glimpse fades and it becomes a memory. Right? So in order to sustain that, that you're not only flirting with reality, not only courting reality, going out on a date once in a while, but actually entering into union with reality. That you're simply as in a lucid dream that continues and continues and continues, and you're lucid all the way through. Okay? So here's the daytime practice that corresponds to the nighttime, and that is, and I invite you to do this, and it entails prospective memory, something Stephen LeBerge em emphasizes a lot, and it's equally emphasized in traditional Tibetan Buddhist teachings on dream yoga. Prospective memory of attending forward, remembering to do something forward, and here's what to remember. Should you see anything anomalous, anything out of the ordinary, like me coming two minutes early, I mean, what's up with that? Was I sick, deranged, did my clock go crazy? I mean, that wasn't very odd, so maybe not odd enough. So no, that wasn't odd enough. But if I floated in here on, on a carpet, you can draw one of two conclusions. Either my meditation went extremely well, <laughs> or else you're dreaming. <laughs> and frankly, I would bet on the latter. <laughs> so when you, see, when you see an anomaly, at any time, and I mean any time, at one hour after, you've, after you know you've awakened in the morning, while you're eating, just see anything out of the unusual, out of the ordinary, then ask yourself a question. And this is called the critical reflexive attitude or stance. Stephen LeBerge, lucid dreaming. Ask yourself a question, might I be dreaming? And it may be so vivid what you're perceiving, so vivid that you're just about positive you're not dreaming. I mean, you can see the individual hairs on another person's head. You could, you know, and so forth. I couldn't be dreaming. And I remember very vividly having exactly such a dream. It was so vivid that I, that I asked myself. And I, I, maybe I did the really silly one. No, no, I'm not dreaming. And that was it. It was just so vivid I couldn't believe it. Right? So then you need a test. If you ask yourself the question, could I be dreaming, then a test is good. And we have three. And they all work very, very well. Not 100%, but they work very well. One you probably recall is if there's any written matter nearby, bring the written matter, read it, take it out of your field of vision, really just quickly, and bring it right back, the chances are about 85% that the second time you read it, it will be different. And if it is, there should be very compelling evidence that you're dreaming, right? Now there may be, and, if that, and that's a really good one, take it out of your field of vision, read it second time, if it's different, you're dreaming. Okay? If it's the same and you're still wondering, take it out a second time, put it back in your field of vision, and the chances are now, once again, very high that you, it will change if you are dreaming. So there's one test. Another test that you can do, certainly here, because they know we're meditating and we may do odd things on occasion, is just to jump straight up on a flat platform, so no danger, but just jump straight up, right? And if you're dreaming, the chances are very high that when you jump straight up, and the last time I tried this in a dream, it did just what I thought it would do, I just went up and I just hovered, like, just stayed up there. And that was sufficient, sufficient reason for me to believe that I was dreaming, you know? 
quite compelling. Um, but it, you may not hover. That's one thing that really may happen. But you may kind of drift back. And I think we've all seen the, the, the films of the astronauts on the moon where they, they jump up and then they kind of, ah. That's dream gravity. It's moon gravity, but it's dream. You may just drift down. Or you may drift down and not quite touch the ground. That should be a clear sign. Ah, I'm dreaming. Now, my favorite one, I only learned about this within the last year or so. Uh, and I've suggested this to somebody, and this person tried it, and it worked. And it's the cutest one. It's the Pinocchio test. And that is, if, if you've gotten critical reflexive, you've seen something, you're wondering whether you're dreaming, just pull on your nose. And this you can do at any time. Because right now, if I should just go, you would just think, you wouldn't think twice about that. Right? So his nose itched, big deal. People do that, you know? We'll do that in the dream. And the person who reported this to me recently said, that the nose was like bubble gum. And <laughs> you get a Pinocchio nose. It actually stretches. There's no cartilage in your nose in the dream. It's silly putty. <laughs> so it actually stretches out. It's very cute. And I call it the Pinocchio, because then you know that all the appearances are lying to you. Because they seem to be absolutely out there, and this is waking. Uh-uh. The longer the nose, the more you should know this is definitely not waking reality. So there you have it. So there are some techniques. And then as you're falling asleep, as you're falling asleep, just like casting a, like as a fisherman casting a fly, cast your attention into the future, into the night. And with a question tonight, if I'm anywhere else other than Tanyopura Mind Center, and my time's just about out. If I'm anywhere other than the Tanyomparan Mind Center, and I see anything odd, then I will ask myself, how odd? I will do a critical reflexive test. I will do a state check, and then you'll be on your way. Okay? So that's fun. And here we have so few demands on our time that you don't really have to worry about whether you sleep in and so forth. And then you can start to develop a 24-7 kind of practice where you can be lucid at night as well as trying to be lucid during the daytime. Okay? So a little introduction to lucid dreaming. Now, as you're, you're probably anticipating with your prospective memory, that is drawing from the past, but anticipating what's coming up next, is we're moving into the second phase of the awareness of awareness. The awareness of awareness. And as you may recall, we're going to be doing the oscillation, and I'm going to watch my hands, not like this, but opening like a sea anemone, and then closing like a sea anemone, that expanding into space, and then just withdrawing into itself. But now, a deeper cognoscopy, not just into the experience of being aware, but seeing if we can sense how do we experience the sense of being the person who's in charge, the one who is releasing and withdrawing, or inverting the awareness. Somebody's doing it, right? Must be me. So what's my sense of being in charge, of controlling my attention? agreeing to go along with the instructions and try them. So what, as you invert your awareness, just what comes to mind when you try to probe right into your experience of being the agent? Now, why are we doing that? What I'd like to do here is go from the outside in. Because I think it's, and this will be maybe 10 minutes, and then we'll go right into it. But I think it really can be very practically helpful. It's all about practice. Okay? And this has to do with looking at the inner prerequisites for developing along, the, uh, developing along the path of shamatha, let alone achieving it. That's manana manana. But just can we develop our attention skills, develop a relaxation, greater stability, vividness, or are we always just having the same quality every single day? Right? 
And so there are outer prerequisites, there are inner prerequisites. Well, thanks to our host, thanks to the architects and the workers and everybody maintaining this property, we have a pretty good environment here. It doesn't get a whole lot better. So that's taken care of. We're safe, food, all of that, that's taken care of. And then we say, okay, what are the inner prerequisites to develop along the path of shamatha? Okay? So we'll just, I'm going to do it quickly. There are only five. And that is one, in this relative absence of hedonic pleasures, that is, the televisions are turned off, the internet is turned off, and so forth and so on. We don't have recreational reading here, and so forth and so on. It's a beautiful environment, but not much entertainment for us, obviously quite deliberately. Can you, in the midst of a pretty meager diet of hedonic pleasure, certainly it's nice to go for a swim, why not? Go for a walk, have a good, occasionally pop over to the divine and have a nice meal if you like. Why not? But overall, this is a meager diet of hedonic pleasure, right? And so on that meager diet, where there's very little to distract us from outside, to stimulate us, to arouse pleasure from outside, can you, in the midst of such a lifestyle, maintain a sense of contentment? Just that, it's a nice word, and self-explanatory. And can you, in the midst of this, have few desires? You might desire this and that, but is sheer, the sheer volume of desires, the quantity of desires, is it quite small? So overall, few desires and contentment. If that's not true, if, you, if you're not contented, you're just always kind of grumpy and this isn't working out and I don't like that and I don't like this and I'm, I'm restless and so forth, then it doesn't matter how skillful you are in shamatha, you know, in terms of sheer technique, it's not going to go very well. You'll not be able to develop it because of the lack of contentment and having too many desires. That'll always just agitate your mind continually. And then you'll just get frustrated. Oh, I can't get it to stop. I can't get it to stop. Well, that's because you don't have contentment and you have too many desires. So those two are indispensable, right? Third one, ethics. Maintaining really pure ethical discipline, at the very least non-harm. Non-harm. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. But maintaining a level of non-violence, of benevolence, of gentleness. So there's a third one. Fourth one, easy for us here, living inside, not easy for people auditing that have outside responsibilities. And there it is. And that is having few activities and few concerns. Few activities and concerns. If you're just auditing and you need to go out into the world and attend to a myriad of activities, it's hard. It's really, really hard to develop here because every time you, you step outside, you're, you're stepping into a field of entropy, a centri centrifugal force. It's scattering your attention to all kinds of things that you need to attend to, right? Well, here, and, and I have more than most of you because I, I must keep on internet. I have many things I need to attend to outside. I keep it to a minimum, but that does, you know, that's an issue. That's an issue. Whereas happily for you, hopefully, by and large, very little to draw you out. So for at least for eight weeks, few concerns, few activities. So you, your life is simple and not a lot to occupy your mind. That's a fourth one. And then the fifth one, and here's where I want to connect with Andreas and our lovely conversation yesterday. And that is to completely avoid, to be really persevering, continuous in relentlessly releasing or getting rid of rumination. Rumination involving desires and so forth. So now we're talking about a whole way of life. And frankly, from my experience, the, the, Vipassana, the Vipassana tradition, where you find it Insight Meditation Society and Spirit Rock and many other places, I think they do this best. I mean, I, and I must say, I've really not had experience in Zen, Zen centers, so I, I can't speak about that. But I've been to a lot of Tibetan centers. 
and they, have, they all have strengths, and they, all of them in limitations. But what I found in the Vipassana, I spent five months in, in Insight Meditation Society, meditating you know, the whole time, in retreat the whole time. And this really excellent emphasis that you get in the Vipassana tradition of maintaining an ongoing flow of mindfulness, whether you're walking, you're eating, going to the bathroom, washing dishes, and so forth, just trying to elevate the level of presence, of mindfulness in the present moment. And whatever you're attending to, being fully present there, I'm sure this is true in Zen also. In Zen, what, what is it called? Uh, Amiya, what is the flower arranging called? Flower arranging, what is it? It has a special name in Japan. Ikebana, Ikebana, yeah. I'm, you're an expert, and I'm at the opposite end of the universe. But my strong assumption is that when practicing Ikebana, that you're bringing an extraordinary degree of presence, of mindfulness, attentiveness to this. You're not ruminating about something else and, and then slapping the flowers together. Is that, is that a, a good guess? Okay, I kind of I thought I would say on safe ground there. So clearly it's there in the Zen tradition, and very explicit in the Vipassana tradition, and it's a magnificent emphasis, so important. And now we have dozens and dozens of studies showing this is really, really beneficial. It's good for you in so many different ways. And so whether you're practicing bare attention, mindful walking, or you're moving into what Andreas was suggesting that he found so helpful yesterday, choiceless awareness, or just open presence without you know, bringing in Dzogchen view and a lot of esoteric teachings and so forth, just an open presence. I love the, I've never heard the phrase before, but let's call it contemplative anarchy. Contemplative anarchy. Uh, but it's not just the same as everything else, because within, within this realm, we're called, we're called the, the Andreas Kingdom, where within it, contemplative anarchy is the mode of governance, you keep the barbarians at the gate. That is, you want to protect your anarchy. And you don't let the barbarians in and ruin everything for you. And the barbarians are rumination. Now, that's no fun. If they come storming in, then it blows to smithereens your anarchy. The anarchy is no fun anymore. It's just back to, eh, just dukkha. So there it is. It's one of the most effective means for warding off this mindless, semi-conscious, useless, and quite fatiguing rumination. But barring that, so there's your... There's your great wall, of, great wall of China, great wall of Andreas around your kingdom, keeping out the, the hordes of rumination. But within the kingdom, oh, it's choiceless awareness, right? Choiceless awareness, open presence. Whatever comes up, just attend to it. Let it be, attend to it. Let your attention move, but you're not just going into one spin-off after another in rumination. So that's a direct antidote, a really, really good antidote. And if you don't have that, you don't have the foundation for developing shamatha because then you'll still be caught up in rumination again, right? So we're speaking here of a lifestyle. And so often when you, when you tell me in, the, in, in our individual meetings, I'm meditating four hours a day, six hours a day, it's a lot of days, that's a lot of hours not spent on the cushion. So the question immediately comes up, that's fine, four hours, six hours, it's fine. What are you doing for the other 10 hours, right? And if that other 10 hours is contemplative anarchy, and I do mean contemplative anarchy, of uh, being very present, very mindful, very engaged, swimming, walking, and so forth. That, and that's fine. But of course, if that other 10 hours or so is just falling back into rumination, then that's just going to completely undermine your four or six hours spending on, spent on the cushion. Okay? So there's a connection there. Now I want to uh, complete, finish the point. So those are the prerequisites to be able to develop 
one's attention skills, so that when you venture into Vipassana, by whatever tradition, the Vipassana tradition of Southeast Asia, Zen, Mahamudra, Dzogchen, and so forth, that when you, in that immediacy of the present moment, you do gain some penetrating insight, that you're able to sustain it. You're able to sustain it. Now, what's the strategy for putting some shamatha foundation under your Vipassana, which is absolutely classic Buddhist practice? Well, for this, now we can say, now we can start coming in from outside to inside. We say, okay, I'm covering these outer five prerequisites. Contentment, having few desires. These are good to memorize. Contentment, having few desires. Maintaining pure ethical discipline. Having few activities and concerns. And then finally, which is really definitely becoming a meditative practice, completely releasing rumination. And that is just maintaining an ongoing flow of sanity, of not just losing your mind into rumination. With those five, now you're ready to practice shamatha. Right? Now you're ready to go to supine position. Now you're ready to be still, sitting, supine, the two major postures that are really good for shamatha. So now what? And now we can see, all right, what's... What's in the way? What are the barriers to achieving these three qualities and really moving along the path of shamatha? Well, the first one is that even when you're present, so you're, you're not just caught up in rumination, you're present, still, this is not shamatha if your attention is going here, if you're still engaging in contemplative anarchy. Okay? That's really much, much better, much, much better in every way, psychologically, physiologically, than just getting caught up in rumination and then rumination with resentment, rumination with anxiety, and so forth and so on. This is worlds better. But it's not shamatha, right? It's not shamatha, because it's not unified. It's going here, it's going there, and so forth. So a lot better than that, but it's not shamatha yet. So shamatha is always selective, selective. And so now to move along, what's getting in the way of shamatha is that the mind is still being dispersed. It's going off to the six, the six domains of experience, which is then not shamatha. It's open presence, yes, but it's not shamatha. And of course, your mind will not dissolve into the substrate consciousness or this storehouse consciousness and achieve, you know, really come to the essential nature of mind. So now what is needed here is a withdrawal, a deliberate withdrawal of attention from these various sense fields, from all of the activities of the six, the six fields, and bring it into one field, into one field, right? And so, for example, into the field of the body. Now this is no longer anarchy. Now this is contained, and now there's, now there's a, cl- a closer periphery a boundary, and that is I'm not going out to the visual, not deliberately, going out to the visual, the auditory, and so forth, and I'm not going to go off, of course, spinning off into rumination. I'm going to be attending to the sensations of the breath within the body, within the body. Okay? Good, good, good move. And so this dispersion of, uh, of attention is now slowly being, we're getting coherence, we're getting unification, which is what samadhi is about. It's unification. Okay, good move. How about let's move in closer, whether to the acquired sign, but let's just move on our trajectory here, just one of many, settling the mind in its natural state. Now we're withdrawing the attention from all the sensory appearances, from all of them altogether. Good. Now it's getting more unified into just this one domain, the domain of the mind, and thoughts, images, and so forth that arise within that space. Good. More unification. But it's still this, that, that, that. I mean, you can achieve shamatha here. But what's standing between you and attending to the space of the mind and all the thoughts and images are coming up and so forth, what's standing between that and the substrate consciousness? What's standing between? It's all these appearances. 
Because when you're attending to all the appearances of the coarse mind, you're still engaging with the coarse mind, right? And so we need to move beyond this array and this, this engaging with the various appearances, discursive thoughts, mental images, memories, and so forth. We can't remain there and go to the substrate consciousness at the same time. Something has to give. Some barrier has to break down. And so what do we do then is we withdraw the awareness even from that domain. We've already withdrawn it from the five sensory. Now withdrawing it from the domain, the space of the mind and its contents. Right? So I want to remind you of something I mentioned earlier. And that is in the emergence. This is straight Dzogchen. The emergence when we wake up from deep sleep. In the, according to Buddhist understanding, the development of a human fetus. You're starting with the substrate consciousness. That's what that, from the time that the fetus is conscious, the first consciousness of the fetus is just raw, basic substrate consciousness. And then as the nervous system develops, of the developing fetus, you start developing a brain, you start developing the other senses, then out of the substrate consciousness emerges mental consciousness, and out of that, auditory and so forth and so on. Uh, but the point here is in that, in that evolution, it goes from the substrate consciousness, from the substrate, from the substrate, the sword in, inside the sheath, but very, very quiet. You've just slipped into the sheer vacuity. Out of that emerges the substrate consciousness. Out of that emerges this ahamkara, the grasping under the self, this polarization of I being here. And then out of that emerge appearances. And then the manas, or mental, mental cognition, that's discerning this type of appearance and that type of appearance. And then out of that clicks in the conceptual mind that starts labeling and objectifying, oh, that's the color of Fran's shirt, and that's the color of his hair. And so now we have an object that has attributes, right? And then comes in reification. Oh, Fran's really over there, and I'm really over here. And then, the, then welcome to samsara. What we're doing is rolling that back rolling that back. So by the time we've withdrawn even from the various appearances of the space of the mind, we're rolling back, rolling back manas, or mental cognition, which discerns and distinguishes between this type of appearance and that. Not judging them, but simply distinguishing them. Right? I mean, I look at Franz shirt and I look at Michael's shirt and I see green and brownish mottled color. You know, but, I, but without thinking, without labeling, they're different. I can see it. That's manas. It's very primitive, but it's able to distinguish this from that with or, while, with or without verbal labels, concepts, categories, and all of that. They're just not the same. right? And so we're rolling this back. We're rolling this back. So we withdraw even from the space of the mind and the various appearances there. You're shutting down manas at the coarse level, the coarse mind. And you're coming inward, away from the mind, away from appearances, all appearances. You recall this from the instruction. And you're coming in, but as you're coming in, as we're trying to roll this carpet backwards, what's the next one? Can you remember what I just said? There were a myriad of appearances and manas being activated. You're rolling that back. And what's the next line at the gate? The sense of eye, exactly right. The sense of I, the aham, the ahamkara, the self-grasping, the eye-grasping, or it's simply called klishtamana, afflictive cognition. That's really raw, primitive, basic. Ants have it, butterflies have it. The most primitive living conscious organisms have it. The distinction of me and not me, 
right? So that's the lion at the gate. How do, and we have to get by that lion. We can't just stay there. You want to achieve shamatha if you're just there. Because beyond that is a substrate consciousness, right? So how do we get, how do we dissolve this big burly lion of I am, I am? Well, as in the, was it the Wizard of Oz? You pull back the curtain. You pull back the curtain on that experience of being the I am, the person who's in charge, the agent. You pull back the curtain. See, anybody in there? And what you may see is just like the Wizard of Oz, nobody in charge, just appearances, but the appearances are empty. Okay? So that's why we do this. Now in conclusion, I'm going to stop before, at, at five minutes past. Um, the point here is definitely we're encroaching into Vipassana territory. But we're not going to spend a lot of time here. If we are really practicing Vipassana, then we might keep on probing, probing, probing there to try to really realize anatta, non-self. We're just trying to soften it up a little bit so that we can slide through, get it to go fall asleep. It's like coming to the lion at the gate and putting some chloroform. Like some chloroform? Yeah. Lion at the gate zonks out. So it's, you haven't gained some profound life-transforming realization. You've just put the dude to sleep. And then you can slip quietly in, into the substrate consciousness, and then you're on your way. Okay? So this is, got 30 seconds, this is a way to get by the lion at the gate of this klishtamana, this afflictive cognition. So you can move right on through. And of course, what's on the other side is substrate consciousness. Okay? Go too far, and you slip into the substrate, and then you just sound asleep. But slip into the substrate consciousness, the luminosity is there, and you've made it. Okay? So let's practice. That was a lot of talking. Now let's just go to the experience itself. Even in this one session, let's balance earth and sky. Going to the earth and settling the body, speech, and mind in their natural states. Grounding yourself in the earth element and attending to the sensations of the breath. Quieting, calming, easing your mind.
with every out-breath, relax more and more deeply, setting your body at ease, releasing the breath, and releasing thoughts. Now let your eyes be at least partially open. Rest your awareness in the space in front of you, but without even taking that space as an object. Simply rest in the present moment with no object, without deliberately attending to anything, just resting mindfully, without distraction, without grasping. And now simply be aware of what you already know. You're not seeking to gain some new knowledge, but to scale back, like peeling an onion, taking off all the outer layers to your most core knowledge. You're already aware that you're aware. You already know that you're aware. And rest in that knowing, which needs no appearances or objects to confirm itself. It's self-confirming. It is knowing.
And then, whether in conjunction with the breathing, or if you've outgrown that, at your own rhythm, your own pace, with great interest, not so much fierce determination or sheer effort, but with great interest in the very nature of consciousness itself, arouse and invert your attention right in upon the experience of being aware as you withdraw from all appearances. And then while ever so gently sustaining the flow of awareness of awareness, release your attention. Release it out into space, even beyond space, beyond appearances to no object. the best of your ability, let the flow of mindfulness be non-conceptual, without getting caught up in chit-chat with thoughts arise. When thoughts arise, just release them instantly. So assuming that you have agreed to participate in this exercise, such that you're deliberately, intentionally, inverting and releasing your awareness, as you invert now, invert more deeply, just to see what you see when you invert your awareness right in upon that which is controlling the attention. What do you see? 
when you look, look in upon the agent, what appears to your awareness that wasn't there before? Invert and then utterly release. The more fully you release, let go, relax, the more penetratingly you can invert your awareness right in upon itself and your experience of being the agent. Continue practicing this for as long as you like. But when the spirit moves you, when you feel like it, when you've had enough, then just release the oscillation, the inversion and the release. You've warmed up enough. Now simply come to rest in the center, neither going out nor in. Let your awareness come to rest in its own place, holding its own ground, knowing itself.
you find your attention falling back into its old patterns of either spacing out into laxity or dullness or getting carried away by thoughts, return for as long as you like to the oscillation. And when you invert, arousing your attention with curiosity, with interest, thereby overcoming laxity, invert so deeply that the appearances of yourself as the agent are on the outside. And you've penetrated through to a simple knowing, a luminous knowing. And then utter a release into space with no object, thereby releasing the energy behind excitation. And return to the center when it feels right. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
Namaso. I really enjoyed yesterday's discussion because it was all just spot on on experience. And so I'd like to return to that, but also I want to give time to written questions. And as I recall, there was one that I only got through part of it, and I'd like to finish that. Well, maybe. Oh, yeah, here it is. Okay, so I'll just read one, and then we'll go open, and then just see how the afternoon develops. But this is from earlier, just to give, remind you of the last question. The question was about the different kind of uh, indirect effects of different shamatha methods. And so I responded to that one. And now there's just a second question. I want to be complete here. This is from Natalina. There she are. Uh, so even if, even if each practice may be associated with uniquely different indirect and or short-term benefits, do you think they're common longer longer-term result of achieving shamatha may be such as to overshadow or equalize any potential differences? Yeah, very interesting question. Um, and short answer, yes. Because if one asks, going back now to the Buddhist teachings themselves, I mean, there are many wonderful developments after that, but I always like to go back to the root. Why develop shamatha? And the and, and then often it's referred to as, well, why develop the jhanas? Why develop access to the first jhana or anything beyond that? And the, the, really the immediate answer is to overcome the five hindrances. That's the reason, right there. The Buddha said, if, you're, if your mind is still subject to the five hindrances, or I prefer the translation, the five obscurations, then, and I, can, I can't quote exactly, but I can paraphrase closely, anyone who is still burdened by, subject to these five obscurations should regard himself as enslaved, uh, lost in a desert track, uh, in bondage, and so forth. In other words, you're really, you're not in good shape. You're really, this is, you don't have a sound mind. And so just really brief going through them. Are you still prone to the attachment fixation on hedonic pleasures of all kinds? The bounties, the seductions of the desire realm, that's hedonic. Are you still hung up there? Then you're still, you're still stuck. Are you still prone to ill will, malevolence, you know, hostility, but with a real intention behind it, ill will? If so, you're stuck. Are you still prone to excitation, excitation and restlessness, anxiety? You're still stuck. Still prone to laxity and dullness? You're stuck. Still prone to kind of this oscillating, debilitating, Uncertainty, uncertainty about yourself, practice, and so forth, but just undermines, takes away that sharp, single-pointed edge of the practice. If so, then you're in bondage. You're lost in a desert track. That sounds pretty awful to me. I've been out in the Gobi in southern Mongolia. I wouldn't want to be lost out there. So I, I can envision being lost in a desert track. That could be awfully frightening. And they said, that's the nature of your mind, if you're still subject to these five. So any of the, of the three methods we're looking at or any of the other shamatha methods, focusing on a Buddha image, a bindu, orb of light at your heart, and so forth, they all have that in common. If you achieve shamatha, this is why it's worth going the, going the distance and not simply splashing around in the shallow end of the pool, stages 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 3, 2, 1, 1, 2, 3. All much better than not being on stage 1. But why would anybody go to the effort of actually achieving shamatha? Because when your mind totally dissolves into the substrate consciousness, you're free of them. Not forever, but they've all gone to sleep. They've all gone dormant, all five of them. 
And that's equally true whether you've achieved access to the first jhana or the full achievement of the first jhana. You're equally free of those five obscurations. And I prefer, and this is where I'll stop, this is, I prefer the, the translation obscuration. They're both correct, hindrance or obscuration. They're both correct. Uh, nivarana, it's called in Pali and in Sanskrit. But why I pre- prefer obscuration? Because then you, the immediate question is, what's being obscured? You can't have an obscuration and nothing being obscured. You can have a hindrance, but that could be a hindrance to all kinds of things. But what's being obscured, what explicitly is being obscured, as long as your mind is still prone to or closed in upon by any of those five obscurations? And what's being obscured is quite clear. What the Buddha called the brightly, the brightly shining mind. The brightly shining mind. And in the Pali Canon and then the ter- in the Theravada commentaries, they say, what's that brightly shining mind that's being obscured by those five obscurations? It's the bhavanga, the straight Theravada Buddhism. It's the bhavanga that is the brightly shining mind. And the bhavanga, I am totally convinced, is nothing other than the substrate consciousness or the subtle continuum of mental consciousness. But that which by nature is luminous, that's why the Buddha called it the brightly shining mind. It's by nature luminous. It's by nature still, radiant, and pure. The Buddha said it's adventitiously, then now and then, covered over by various mental afflictions and obscurations. But by its nature, it's not obscured. So there's a short answer. Any method of shamatha will get you to that. And then once you're there, if you want to achieve shamatha all over again, let's say on a mental image or stage regeneration and so forth and so on, you're welcome to do that. But you've got a mind now, to use Tonkaba's terminology, you've got a mind now that is serviceable, fit for action. You're ready to practice vipassana. You're ready to push the four immeasurables out to immeasurable level and so forth. So that's why, OK? Shall we? Good. Oh, yeah. So now, practice-related questions are all kinds of very interesting theoretical ones. But now, as we see, we have only five weeks left. Practice first. So practice-related. Michael first. It's got to be practice-related, though. That's just uh, concerning what you mentioned. OK, just that's The Bhavanga, yes. is, it, is it Pali and, and uh, uh, synonym with Alaya? Or? Well, it is Pali. It is the Pali language, yes. And you find it, you find it in the Pali literature. It comes up repeatedly. Buddha Gosik is a very clear account of it. There's an excellent book by an outstanding scholar. I, I've, I've corresponded with him, Peter Harvey. Got a book in English. Uh, he's English, English himself. Very, very fine Pali scholar. Uh, and the book is The Selfless Mind the selfless mind. He's got an outstanding presentation. He shows all the sources in the Pali Canon, the commentaries, to really unpack what is meant by the Bhavanga. So I won't elaborate on it right now. I'll just say this much, that why I am, oh, I'm, for many, many reasons, I'm convinced that the Bhavanga, that, that, that's the term in the Pali Canon, they don't use the word alavijnani at all. That never crops up, nowhere to be found. But then nor have I found Bhavanga in the Sanskrit or Tibetan literature. It's interesting. Subtle continuum of mental consciousness, of course. Alayavijnana, of course, both in the Chittamatra or Yogacara system, but also in Dzogchen and Mahamudra. Right? So, but just one, I'll just give you one little teaser why I'm utterly convinced, but I'm, for many, many reasons, here's one. Go to the Theravada literature, Pali Canon. When does the Bhavanga, when do you experience it? When you fall deep asleep, dreamless sleep. When you become comatose, you faint. When you achieve access to the first jhana, and when you die, when you die. In fact, when you when you reach the bhavanga, that's when you're dead, right? All appearances have vanished, right? So that's straight Theravada. Now let's go over to Dzogchen. 
and now and, and Dujum Lingba, and I've translated now I think all of his works on, on Dzogchen, that is his dermas, his, his mind treasures, uh, he gives the clearest presentation I've seen anywhere. And that just shows how limited my reading is. But it is extraordinarily clear on the nature of the alaya vijnana and the distinction between the alaya and the alaya vijnana. I've not seen that anywhere else. And then in his writings, and he speaks with great authority for the Dzogchen tradition, he says, okay, what, what are the occasions when you experience the substrate consciousness? Alaya vijnana. Oh, let's see. When you fall into deep dreamless sleep, when you faint or go comatose, uh, when you die, when you get that, that's when you're dead. And, oh yeah, when you're chief shamatha. And these are independent. He's, he's writing in the 19th century as a Dzogchen master. I don't think anybody in Tibet read Pali. And none of them traveled down to Thailand, Sri Lanka, and so forth. They just weren't interested. They didn't go. And the people in Thailand, they weren't going over and studying with Dzogchen masters. So I think we can say these are independent labs with independent methods. Some are practicing mindfulness of breathing. He's practicing Dzogchen and the t settling the mind is natural state and so forth. Different methods, different texts, different terminology. That's pretty compelling to my mind. I didn't think it was philosophical speculation anyway, but I think that's pretty compelling evidence. Oh, this is some common ground by independent labs. Okay? Good. Let's have now one entirely unpracticed that we've been doing. How's awareness of awareness coming? That's one, or it could be any of the three, any of the four measurables or the three shamatas. What's up, Regina? I wanted to know the difference, uh, the first jhana. That, that, uh, oh, have you achieved the first jhana? <laughs> no. Oh, then it's not experiential. <laughs> Sorry, let's, let's do that later. Because we have five weeks, and there will be a time, but right now, your experience here and now. And if anybody's achieved the first jhana, by all means, share. Yes, please, Marie. Just trying to explain I'm sorry if you don't understand, but I'm going to try my best trying to explain uh, this uh, practice about uh, the one that we did yesterday, awareness of awareness. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, it, seems, it seems easier to, uh, to practice awareness of awareness when you are uh, physically tired mm -hmm. uh, and you are, but you are mindfully aware because usually there are less thoughts. Mm -hmm. And you can feel very relaxed and peaceful, and it is as if your awareness came into a very still atmosphere. I mm -hmm. don't know if calling it That's atmosphere. That's fine. It's very clear, yes. Uh, which is very luminous, and, and you are there. You are mm -hmm. very, very present. Mm -hmm. And as if there was no other place, or if there was no uh, perimeter or limit, or I don't know the way yeah. to call That's it. Fine. It's all clear. And then, um, and it is... is um, and it is sometimes common, uh, I have seen during this retreat, to arrive to awareness of awareness after practicing some sessions, one after the other, without yeah. uh, taking breaks. Right. Or just little stretching mm -hmm. and yeah. getting Short into break. the next mm -hmm. session. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, as if, uh, as it, I mean, I, I, it was not intended to practice awareness of awareness, mm -hmm. but uh, at the end of the fourth or fourth session, mm -hmm. it, it happened, it has happened some, sometimes, sure. that suddenly as if a, if a light bulb mm -hmm. was turned on and all turned luminous without making effort, without you making any effort, and you don't want the session to come to an end. Mm -hmm. So that's more or less. Yeah, very good. What can I say? Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. It was very clearly stated. Uh, very, very clear, and you're not the only one. You're not the only one. If I go back very briefly to, 
oh, 30 years ago, 30, a bit more than 30 years ago, when I was a monk, I remember sometimes, when I was young, I was maybe more energetic than I am now. Um, and that could be sometimes in a way, just too much kind of energy. And then I get a cold. Occasionally, we all do. I get a cold. And then sometimes my meditation would go better. Because there's not so much churning, you know? It's kind of like, oh, I feel really oh, full of mucus. Oh. <laughs> so this is interesting. And what you're seeing there is, as you're tapping in, you're getting these, a bit of a light show from the substrate consciousness. Because you're tired. You're kind of slipping towards the trajectory of falling asleep. But you haven't lost the clarity. And so on the other side of the dullness and the tiredness, on the other side of that, a light is be a showing. And if you don't identify with, grasp onto the dullness, then you can linger there and slip right through it. So I give an example. I used to live outside of San Francisco when I lived with my guru, Yacharambuchi. And we lived in an area overlooking the ocean. We'd have extremely thick fog, very thick fog, like almost you couldn't see 10 feet in front of you. Uh, and so I would be driving up, sometimes driving up at night on a motorcycle, very, very windy road in this extremely thick fog, trying to get back home, right? Um, and what I, it was, this is a, just obviously a visual representation, but I was extremely, because I didn't want to die, you know, on a motorcycle, very easy to die. Uh, I didn't want to die, so I was very vigilant. I'm going around these hairpin turns, going up and up into the hills where we lived but with this very, very thick fog. And so my headlight on the motorcycle was brightly illuminating the fog, and I was very, very attentive to the fog. Right? So the analogy there is that was it foggy? Was it dull? Was it all cloudy, over, completely dense? Yes, it was. But my awareness was brightly illuminating the fog. So when dullness descends, it's possible to descend beneath it and let the light from your substrate consciousness brightly illuminate the fog, not be caught up in it, and then just like that, and then just going, you know, then falling into the substrate where you're not aware of anything. But it's possible to release your grasping onto the dullness itself by, in a manner of speaking, taking one step back and looking at the dullness and being vividly aware, dull. Or sometimes, just to con conclude, I travel a lot, sometimes over a lot of time zones. And so I'll, get, I'll be very jet-lagged on occasion. Not that often, actually, but sometimes with a combination of events. A lot of work, too little sleep, and jet-lagged. Then, then what I noticed is, on occasion, my mind is not very smart. It's a bit stupid. Like I've dropped 20 or 30 points of IQ. I can't figure out simple things. If I read something complex, I can't understand it, and so forth. And so on those occasions, I've experienced this, where I have a very clear and discerning awareness, oh, my mind is stupid. Thank goodness I'm not. <laughs> that is, could I on that occasion then, now that I've recognized that my mind is stupid, solve some very difficult problem? No, because I have to use the mind to do that. And it's going to be in that same stupid mind. And it's stupid. But I'm not fused with it. And I'm recognizing, oh, my mind's stupid. I think maybe now's not the time to try anything difficult or make any big decisions. Because I won't always be that stupid. I'll be better tomorrow. So a clear awareness of stupor, of a clear, of lack of clarity, sluggishness, dull, dull wittedness. I've experienced that. 
and I think I actually come out of it on occasion. Oh, yeah, we're going to go left because I want to just try to be impartial. We're going to go left. Anything over here? Yes, over to Gudo. We will get to you, Nico. Um, I'm finding that uh, my practice very similar um, towards the end of the, the day after dinner is significantly better than what it is in the morning. Yeah. Um, and I've heard you say in the past on podcasts that we should, rather than take off like a jumbo jet, and get to that point, we should sort of come up like a helicopter. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if I should be striving uh, to reach that point earlier in the day mm-hmm. or I should just be happy with the fact that the last four or five sessions are really good. Yeah, very good. Uh, these are actually two different issues, two different issues. Some people are morning people, some people are night people. So some people, when they're waking up in the morning, they... It's just biological. It's not a matter of choice, not a matter of laziness or cleverness, nothing of that. It's just sheer biology. How fast, how fast does your system kickstart and really get going? And some people, they slowly come up. For myself, and this is not anything good, it's just what? When I wake up, it's just like, boing, like that. That's not necessarily good, it's just fast. That's all. Right. Uh, so I'm a morning person. So I love, the, I love the morning hours, and I put in a lot of hours then. But I don't do much. I, I try, try to do really very little thing, very little intellectually in the evening, because I'm not an evening person. I like to really slow down and get to bed early and so forth. Other people are just the opposite. So on occasion, I get up about an hour after my wife goes to bed. You know, when I, obviously when I'm home. She, goes, she comes in at 1.32, and I'm up at 3. You know? she, she can just you know, go work for hours at night with a clear mind, stable, right into 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. I never do that. Never. Right? So that's biology. That's not something to overcome. That's just to work with. Right? As with working with outside noises. You can't control that either. So when I spoke of coming up with a helicopter, it's an entirely different issue. And, and that is when you're sitting down for your shamatha practice. It's very easy when you know, I've got all day and I've got another five weeks. Blah, 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 blah. Blah, 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 I got plenty of time. And then after a while, it's blah, blah. Okay. You know, kind of like, easy does it. It's not a good habit. It's not biology. It's just late. It's just sloppiness. And so for that, now that we're talking just about what's your entry point, then for that very deliberately settling the body, three qualities, settling the speech, that balance there, settling the mind, releasing, deliberately releasing, Whatever concerns. I know there are issues going on in your life. There is everybody else here. Issues, important issues that are worth thinking about. Right? But not now. Not when you're starting the session. You say, yes, this is important, part of my life, a cherished part of my life. But now, for 24 minutes, 48, whatever it is, not now. I'm making a choice. And moreover, I have a right. I have a right to. This is really okay. I'm not betraying anybody. I'm not... I'm not failing to, to fulfill my responsibilities. This is really okay. So it's kind of giving yourself permission and then taking that permission. Okay, here it is. Releasing your concerns, all attachments of this life, and then settling in. And then if it's mindfulness of breathing, for example, or this is what Tibetans do commonly, and that is once they've settled in, in traditional Tibetan practice, of course, they'll be taking refuge, Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and cultivating Bodhicitta. Now that's classical entry. 
Perhaps if they practice in Vajrayana, they'll do Guru Yoga, merging of the Guru with themselves, dissolving body, speech, and mind, and then launch. But one way or another, it's not at all, all uncommon for them, as soon as they've done the preparation, then to count 21 breaths. That's the helicopter. 21 breaths, boom. Okay, 21. If I lose count, I'm going to do it all over again until I don't lose count. So that's the helicopter, 21 breaths. 21, pop, 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 pop. If you got up there, 21 breaths, okay? If you want to practice mindfulness of breathing, you'll carry on. Otherwise, if it's awareness of awareness, for example, you just went up in the helicopter, you're balanced, relatively calm, then you release the helicopter, and then you fly. Okay? Very good. good. Let's read one more, because I don't want these to get moldy. Rose. Where's Rose? Ah, this Rose. Ro yes. Really? Okay. I mean, if you should know. Okay. Hola. So yesterday when practicing settling the mind, you told me actually in our interview. Yesterday when practicing settling the mind in its natural state, while being aware of the stillness of awareness. So this is a couple of days ago, obviously. I focused on the movement of the mind, and I saw a thought arising as a sentence. I'll buy a cookie when... And as I focused deeply, I observed that the thought got weaker, as if it started losing force, and it dissolved in the middle of the sentence. It didn't get to the final part of the idea. Just when she wanted to know when you're going to get that cookie. <laughs> Where? Likewise, at night, when going to bed practicing mindfulness, I saw a cockroach on the pillow. I'm assuming this is an actual cockroach and not the one that goes under the refrigerator, right? It's an actual cockroach. Lucky you. Yeah. Not many people have that opportunity. So I saw a cockroach on the pillow, and I focused on the sensation that was arising. And as being aware of it, I noticed that the intensity of aversion or disliking, well, that just shows that you're not a cockroach. Because otherwise, oh, <laughs> it could have been a very different response. <laughs> it's all relative, you see. Uh, so I noticed that the intensity of aversion or disliking also lost its power by thinking this insect also wants to be well and happy. Very sweet. Good. <coughs> so first part, very, very interesting and, and uh, beautifully expressed. Um, the first part. It's the, the, the bashful maiden. Remember that one? You ever hear of the bashful maiden? Okay, it's time to tell. I'm sure a number of people have. But, for, but there's at least one person who hasn't heard about the bashful maiden. And this is a metaphor from at least a 1,000 years ago, classical India, from the Mahamudra tradition, pertaining to this practice of settling the mind, its natural state. Okay? <laughs> I'm looking around for a player, and it's just there are too many here. You know, young jocks, we just have too many. The player is a ladies' man. Okay. A player in English is like a ladies' man, the guy who's really out looking for the babes, you know? But we just have too many, so I won't point at any one of them, because like, you know. So, so but, the, but this is, it's about a player, about a guy who's really on the, on the lookout for girl, women. And so, as the story goes, the parable goes, there's a bashful young maiden, a very, but she's very, very shy, very bashful young maiden, and she's walking out in the, the courtyard, the public, public courtyard. And she's very lovely. And this player sees her. 
And there's a word, verb in English, he ogles her. If it were a cartoon, his eyes would go boing, boing, like that. You know? In a cartoon, that's what happened. But in real life, <laughs> I know that looks ridiculous when I'm 62 years old, like trying to be a player. Okay, but, but, but you all got the idea. But he's looking at her with such intense interest, and we know what kind of interest. And she being the bashful maiden that she is, as soon as she feels the intensity of his gaze upon her, she disappears as quickly as possible. Because she's not a player. She's a bashful maiden. Right? And so that's the metaphor. It's a, it's a cute one. It's a nice one. And it's also a thousand years old, which shows that it's been narrated for a thousand years, which means for about, what, four times? Four hundred. Oh, a lot of generations. You know, a thousand years times. Well, nanny, never mind. But, um, so 10 decades, 40 generations. Let's say one generation is 25 years. 40 generations, that's a lot of meditators. And they keep on passing on this parable. In other words, there's a lot of experience behind this. And so what are they talking about? And that is as you're attending the space of the mind and the question something pertaining to you know, where you're going to buy a cookie, when the cookie comes up, in this case, you're the player, and I'm going to buy a cookie, that's the bashful maiden. You're the player. And you look and, and it vanishes. The intensity of your mental awareness upon the thought, the image, or what have you, is so intense that it's as if the thought or the image is a bashful maiden. And feeling the intensity of your interest and the focus of your samadhi, it just evaporates. It just vanishes. It's very, very common. Very, very common. Right? And it's especially common in the early phases of settling the mind in its natural state, so much so that many people, not all, but many people, when they first venture into the practice, and I've mentioned this before, They've been practicing mindfulness of breathing for a while, and as they're breathing in and breathing out, just the thoughts are coming, coming, coming. So irritating, like just crawling all over the place, like having cockroaches all over your head. And like, oh, you know, trying to get them to go away. But so many thoughts coming. They say, oh, okay, now finally I'm going to go to settling the mind. And you turn the full force of your attention on the space of the mind, expecting to see all those cockroaches. And suddenly, Where'd you go? You know, now that you're giving your full attention to the space of the mind, they're all gone. And all those cockroaches went under the refrigerator because they were all bashful maidens. Every single cockroach was a bashful maiden. You know? And that's because of the intensity of the gaze. So the idea of this practice is not to scare away the thoughts. That's not the intention or the preference. And so the idea is to allow the thoughts to arise without censorship, without editing, without judgment without preference, all of those. Just this bare attention, a quiet, non-reactive attentiveness, but light, light. And so then we couple this with another, I think this will be the last question for this afternoon. Uh, there's one, one kind of cute image of the, the guy you know, ogling the girl, uh, and then she disappears. But then you've heard the other one, and this is, so although that happens, that's not the ideal. Because you'll actually like to see the thoughts coming up. And then, as the subtler and subtler, subtler thoughts come up, and you're able to observe a whole thought, maybe even a sequence of a thought here, a thought there, and not be prolonging it with grasping, but just you're so loose that one thought comes after another, and then you're attending to subtler ones and shorter ones. Then you're sharpening the knife of your mindfulness and increasing vividness. Right? That really works. But you need something to sharpen your, your mindfulness with, and that's increasingly subtle images, thoughts, and so forth. So 
how then can you make sure that all the thoughts don't just d disappear by the sheer fact of observing them, you know, like the bashful maiden? And then you'll remember, because I've mentioned it a couple of times already, the, the ambience, the feel, is evoked with another image. And since I'm speaking to a woman, so I'll put it in the, in the feminine, and that is an old grandma, an old, old woman, like 80 years old, still in good health, mighty clear, but she's watching other people's children play. Remember that one? So the old woman sitting on a park bench watching other people's children play with the parents there, the mothers there. They're all set. There's just nothing for this grandma to do. And she's not part of the play. She's sitting maybe 50 meters away. But she likes watching kids play, you know, but in such a soft way that none of the kids see grandma ogling them and say, oh, grandma's watching. You know, they're not running for the hills. Oh, grandma, you know, what's the deal? You know? So it's so soft. And it may be as much interest <laughs> as this guy who's a player, but very different interest. He's interested in what he's interested in. And the grandma just loves watching children play. She doesn't want them to run away. She doesn't want them to run towards her either. <laughs> Stay right where you are. You know? <laughs> so it's very attentive, but it's not like that. Okay? Soft. And then you see they come out to play. Okay? And then you can have lots of cockroaches on your pillow. Hola, <laughs> Enjoy your evening. See you soon. <laughs>